for those who ill-treat you. If someone slaps you on one cheek, turn to them the other also. If someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. Give to everyone who asks you, and if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to the other as you would have them do to you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you, learn, sorry, and if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners, expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies, do good to them, and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great, and you will be children of the Most High, because he is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. Do not judge, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over, will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Holly. Um, so at the start of December, I was preaching on the subject of the person of who Joseph is, related to Christmas, that Joseph. And in the, as part of this talk, I wanted us to, and got us to think about this common trend that you might see in modern TV and films, the role of the anti-hero. However, tonight, I want to change things. We're not going to look at anti-heroes. I want to look at something far more traditional, far more conventional. I'm going to look at the role of the villain. So, in stories, in films, in narrative TV shows, or even maybe some video games you may play, we often build up, uh, they often build up on this premise that the audience wants to cheer for some people, and they want to cheer against some other people. Your Sherlock Holmes to your Moriarty's, if you will, your Harry Potter to your Voldemort's, your Simba and Scars, whatever it is, the example that comes to your mind of hero and villain. There are villains throughout. They grasp our attention. They keep us hooked. We want to see them come head to head with the forces of good and get their comeuppance and see the good side win. This then can find ourselves seeping into our psyche, seeping into our worldview, this idea that bad people are just bad people and they deserve what they get. Then we start replacing ourselves into this equation and saying that we are good people, and we are the heroes, and we, say that some, we can see that people who do something against us are the villains. There are enemies within our stories and those that are harmless, we want to see them get their comeuppance. We want to see them come to justice in some level. We desire a level of swift revenge. And then, when we've got this whole thing of, I want revenge against that person for what they've done, we might open up our Bible and come to a passage like what we've just heard and go, huh, well, 
this doesn't seem right. This doesn't seem fair. Why is Jesus saying this? And before we get on to looking at exactly why this is perfectly fair and why this is perfectly good, as part of our series of looking through Jesus and what he says and does through the book of Luke, I want to start with a slightly different note, something that I feel very compelled to say. For those who don't know me, I am currently writing and studying for my master's, and I'm writing my master's dissertation. And for that, I'm writing on the subject of biblical forgiveness for survivors of abuse. And yes, it's a heavy, heavy, horrifying subject to read into. But as part of my studying, part of my reading, I come across passages like this a lot. Passages that are taken in isolation from the rest of the Bible and manipulated and used to justify some pretty horrific things out there, whether that's for an individual or for a group. And sadly, they're probably still being used today by different people in that way. The point of these verses and others like them is not to say that as Christians we are to silently endure anything and everything that other people do. Nor is it saying that as Christians we are to ignore what someone has done to us or that we should not oppose it. God is a God of love and of justice. It is both. It's not one without the other. It is both and. And a lot more. And at times, they, and at all times, these aren't seasonal characters. They are permanent. They are timeless. So, if you're someone that has just heard me say that, and I feel, as I say, I felt compelled to say it at the start, and you want to, and yeah, if it speaks to you, if it's challenging, if it's resonating in your mind, then please come and speak to either Andy or to Jan or to anyone who's part of the staff team or on the welcome desk, because we would love as a church to find someone that is appropriate for you to further discuss this with and unpack the real meaning of these passages and what they are saying and how they relate to us. With, with that said, I just want to pray before we dive into what this passage is saying for us tonight. God, we thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the life that Jesus lived. We thank you for the message he gave us to live by and to follow. Lord, we are saddened and greatly saddened by the way that your word can be used sometimes. And God, we ask for your light to shine in those dark places. We ask for your truth to overcome the lies. We ask for your love to overcome all. And God, as we share now tonight, help your truth come speak through me. Help us receive what your word is saying for all of us. And help our ears and our hearts be attentive to what you are saying. Amen. So, I don't know about you, but I find it very easy to read through the passage that we've just heard and dismiss it as some sort of hyperbolic call to be quite nice to people. And I do agree that there is a decent argument that the examples Jesus is using here are quite hyperbolic. It's not necessarily always to be taken exactly literal as it is. However, to do that is sort of, dis we lose a lot of the good stuff that can be there by dismissing it, dismissing it as hyperbole, dismissing it 
as exaggeration, then we can be losing some of the great truths that are there and deeply prof profound things that Jesus is wanting to share by using them. So tonight, we're going to work through this and see what it is saying. But we, I'm also going to use some of the Sermon on the Mount, which is found in Matthew. Uh, if people are familiar with those passages, chapters 5 to 7 in the Gospel of Matthew, you will see some of the language that is used in this passage we've just heard that is very similar or identical to passages or words that Jesus will say as part of the Sermon on the Mount. And they both sort of help inform each other about what Jesus is truly saying here for us. It sort of helps sometimes peel back some of the hyperbolic language for us to gain what is the truth underneath this. So these verses from today's passage form this narrative around the concept of love. And that is the concept that I will be focusing on. What is lo this love that Jesus is talking about? It centralizes around something that has come to be named as the golden rule, which is do to others what you would have, do have them do to you, which is found in verse 31 of this passage. Matthew, in his book, continues on, to, on adding on to this golden theme, but a golden rule, by adding that it's the meaning of the law of Moses and the prophets. So it's sort of connecting one half as well of the greatest commandment. So when Jesus gets asked, what is the greatest commandment? He says about loving your neighbor as yourself. It's sort of very familiar, very similar language here. But it's expanding on it. It's building upon it almost. It's we can often minimalize and reduce our thinking of who our neighbor is. But here Jesus is expanding it and going, hold on a moment, you might be slightly off with some of your thinking. Let's just clarify, who is your neighbor? Who are we meant to be loving? And it's not contradicting or contrasting in any way the Old Testament. This is building upon it and helping us understand the heart of what has been said before. So this love, what is it? Well, first off, this love is for everyone. There's no exceptions to that. This passage line outlines the fact we are meant to love our enemies. We're meant to love the people that are hurting us, harming us, doing bad to us. We are meant to respond in love. Therefore, love is, this love is for everyone. There is no one that is not qualifying for it. Love is integral to who God is and always will be. He was a loving father before anything was created. The Father, Son, and Spirit, the Trinity, are timeless. They're pre-existent to creation as we know it, to the world. And so we were created out of love and created for love too. It is from there, it's foundational to the character of who God is, this love that we are talking about and focusing on. And here, Jesus is reminding those listening that all and all throughout history since, that we're not to reserve this love for fellow Christians. That's not what it's about. We're not to form a holy huddle or to form some sort of pious clique that disassociates from anyone we might disagree with about anything. No, what Jesus here is telling us and all of his disciples to love everyone, no exceptions. And by this, we mean a genuine care for the others, for other individuals. It is not an act of charity designed to make us feel better. It is something that is far more genuine. It's not something for us to brag about what we have done. Here, 
this passage is getting at what our love for others should not, how our love for others should not be dependent on their actions. We receive God's love, not because of anything that we do, but because of who God is. Therefore, if we have God's spirit within us, and if we're seeking to live lives that reflect God and that love that we have received and the difference he makes within us, then we are meant to reflect that love to others, irrespective of what they have done. There is no qualifications needed for this. We, don't have a, we shouldn't have a checklist to check about whether they are worthy of our love or not. This is saying get rid of any of that thinking. Just love everyone. Love whether they, however they, whatever they do, however they respond to you. We need to love them, and that is what, as Christians, and what God's heart is for them. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, Paul, who's the author of it, writes, Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Whilst we may or may not be former blasphemers, persecutors, or violent people, the point remains that Paul identifies that he is who he is because of the grace of Christ, along with the mercy from Christ and faith and love that are in Christ. Paul sees himself as someone who is saved from being the worst of the worst, and therefore, if he can receive that love, who is he to judge who else could receive that love and what should disqualify them from that? And if Paul can have this mindset and approach with himself, if there's this humility in our approach to other individuals, as Paul shows here, then we again build that mindset of no one is below this, no one is undeserving of this love no matter what they have done, no matter who they may be. Secondly, this love, what we learn from this passage, is that it doesn't seek revenge. In, again, in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 5, we have the Beatitudes, and Jesus calls us to be peacemakers, not revenge seekers. This passage is addressing the sinful desire for revenge we will have when we are wronged. When someone does something against you, there is a natural desire to get revenge that builds up inside of us. That is part of us. That is part of being human. It's part of the consequence of the fall is this desire for revenge and to get our retribution for that. And this passage is speaking against it. Uh, this passage is addressing that sinful desire. And it's saying that God will be the one to seek justice for their actions. This passage is not saying, as I said before, that we're to let people do whatever they want to us. Rather, it is saying that it is not our place to judge or act against another one of God's created beings. God will handle it himself. This is not a removal of earthly justice either. 
It is a choice of submission of our own personal motives and desires for revenge in favor of God's desire of love and justice. Seeking justice can give those who harm us a chance for genuine and holistic repentance, which can be one of the most loving things that we can do for another individual. This passage is a passage about lavish love, and a key part of real love is being able to confront and challenge behavior when needed. Whilst reading this passage, and a passage like this, it's important to keep in mind that we believe in a God that is love and a God that is just. It is not a case, as I said before, of one or the other. It's both, always. We're not to be a doormat to let people walk all over us. That is not what this is saying, even if we can sometimes feel like it might be saying that. It is signaling how our reactions to those situations should be different because of the future hope that we hold and that we have. If, we're, if someone was not to have this idea of a future hope of what God will do and Jesus will do when he comes again, then when they endure stuff like being slapped in the face or losing material possessions or being mocked or jeered, then there's something significant that happens in them. If our value is found in something like our status or our pride or our material possessions, then this instantly opposes that and challenges, our, it challenges who we are. It challenges what we value and what we base our lives upon. Whereas if our value is upon the future hope that is found within Christ, then we can find ourselves with the strength to stand, to be able to turn the other cheek, to not act for revenge and vengeance. We can have the perspective that means that actually giving away our possessions is okay. That's not a problem. We have the truths to hold on to in the face of the lies that may be spouted at us by other individuals and other people. The negative things, though, listed in this passage may impact us still. I'm not going to pretend that having hope in Christ coming again, the future kingdom of God restored, is going to remove any sense of pain or any sense of challenge from these things happening to us. I'm not going to claim that because these things will still hurt. They will still be difficult. They may impact us still. They may shake us still. And they aren't easy. But they do not define us. They do not define who we are. They do not define how we find our value or worth. Jesus himself was slapped. He was struck with a staff. He was spat at. He was flogged, among many other things, in the lead-up to his crucifixion. But with his eyes, his mind, and his heart fixed upon the kingdom of God and the eternal picture, he endured it all and held to the, that perspective as his hum, human body may have been failing. Jesus could have commanded an army of angels to come and to save him. He could have, he could have enacted revenge on those who were doing these things there and then. But he didn't. Instead, Jesus walked a different path. Not one of meek passiv passivity, but one of strong obedience and one of service to the kingdom of God. And third, third, I think it's third, thing for this love from this passage is that this love does not judge. 
We've touched upon it a little bit already. But this love does not judge. Christ shall judge when he comes again. So we don't have to. We have that freedom. We have that release to not have to judge other people. We don't have to decide who is holy, who is not holy, who is righteous, who is not righteous. We don't have to put some standings in our mind of they are better than them. They're closer to God than them. We can remove that, forget about that, throw it out the window, whatever you want to do, because Christ will come. He'll judge. He'll sort all of that for us. We don't need to worry about it. With the arrival of the new heaven and new earth, Christ will be the judge, judge, the living and the dead. So you know when we just shared the creed and it talks about the fact that Christ will come and judge the living and the dead? This is sort of what it's getting at, the fact that Christ will come and judge everyone, all people that's ever lived and ever will live still. Um, Christ will come and judge us all. He'll judge everyone. And then he will separate the sheep from the goats by holding people account to the lives that they have lived. Then and there is where we see true justice. Then and there is where we see true grace take place. Looking back in the Old Testament, we see David sparing Saul's life again and again and again. And in 1 Samuel 26 um, is a particular example of this to draw on. We see that um, we, see, we read that David left the punishment of Saul to the Lord. David knew it was not his job to enact revenge upon Saul. He knew it's not his job to remove Saul. Here is someone that had been anointed to be the next king. He knew that that was what God wanted him to be, was the next king. But he was able to follow. He decided, even though he had examples where he could have ended Saul's life, he could have taken that. He could have pulled it for himself. And Saul was being pretty miserable towards him. Saul was causing him to run for his life, to hide, to leave all the people, pretty much all the people that he knew. It's kind of putting it slightly mildly, but we'll go with that for the sake of time. But here you see David respond to the threats uh, threats and injustices of Saul by being a peacemaker. 1 Samuel 26 serves an example of this. David did not want to seek violent revenge or the demise of Saul on his own terms. He wanted to give Saul the opportunity to repent and to change from his ways and turn from the gods of power and control that he was serving. David puts more faith and trust in the ultimate judgment of the, the one, um, in the ultimate judgment of Christ than he does on his own judgment. He knows that God is just and God is fair and God is love. He knows that we as humans are fallible to being unjust, to being unreasonable, to being biased and all those things. He trusts in the one that is consistent than the one that is inconsistent. And a few verses from the end, or a few verses on from the end of the passage we heard tonight that Holly read, we can read and hear that Jesus tells us not to be hypocrites. He tells us to take the planks out of our own eyes before intending to the specks in someone else's. In the eyes of this love, God's love, we are no better than anyone else. We are all the Barabbases in the Easter story. We are the sinners that have been saved by God, by Christ. We are all deserving of a punishment, but for the grace of God enacted through Christ. We should not judge who is worthy or unworthy of God's love. We should not judge who is more holy or less holy. 
That is not our job. That is not our role. That is exclusively Jesus's when he comes again. Jesus calls us to be lavish with this non-judgmental love in the meantime. We don't disqualify anyone. We just share it and give them the opportunities to experience the true love that is from Christ. And then almost, well, penultimately, this love is merciful. We are to be filled with mercy rather than judgment. That's what this passage is going on to say. In verses 36 to 38, Jesus is calling the listeners and us subsequently to be merciful, just as our Father is merciful. Whilst the Pharisees and others at the time might have been set on judging someone's righteousness, we are to be merciful rather than condemning. We are to forgive rather than to resent. We are to give rather than withhold from those that are in need. When we see someone in need who has previously wronged us, we're not to withhold the help from them. We should have mercy on them as Christ had mercy on us, even though we had wronged him. Mercy is not condoning what they have done, nor is it at the exclusion of justice either. Mercy is in spite of what they have done, loving them. Mercy is in spite of what they have done, forgiving them. Mercy is in spite of what they have done, having compassion and helping them. Some of those things, though, are processes and may and should take time to reach, to reach that point. Um, however, that is what our desire should be. That is what our goal should be for those individuals that may have hurt us. We can't, or we, it's very difficult, and it's not necessarily right for us to instantly be able to go, okay, you've done that, but I've forgiven you, I'm going to help you with this, I'm going to do this, 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 this. Sometimes we need time. So these things are processes. It's not saying it needs to be absolute there and then, which we can sometimes read into this. It is just saying that that is what our attitude should be, one of a desire for forgiveness, one of a desire for mercy, one of a desire for compassion and helping these individuals that have hurt us. And then we forgive because God first forgave us. There is no greater act of forgiveness than that which God undertook through Christ for us. The life-altering freedom we have received from that forgiveness should inspire and infuse us in a, with a forgiving spirit where we want to forgive others so that they can experience a glimpse, a speck of the magnificence of that forgiveness that we have received from Christ. Mercy-filled love looks like doing good to those who hate us, who hate us blessing those who curse us, and praying for those who mistreat us. Verse 27 from this passage, if you're following along. These are not just words that Jesus said here in this passage. These are also things that he lived. On the cross, Jesus has mercy upon all, that had been, all of those that had been a part of him ending up there. By crying out, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. In that, there is no judgment, there is no resentment, there is no condemnation present 
in those words. Instead, they are filled with mercy and forgiveness. In one of the most barbaric and unjust moments in history, we see Jesus doing the ultimate good for many who hate him. We see him blessing those that have been cursing him. And we see him praying, asking God to forgive them. The love that we are experiencing, God's love, is merciful. And then finally, this love is distinctive. We read that it says, if, though, if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners expecting to be repaid in full. We are called, this love that we are called, this love that we have been exploring and I've been unpacking is distinctive. It stands out because it is not what the sinners do in using the language from this. It is not what others do. It is not the way that their approach for love is. We should be different to how our way of loving should be different. It should stand out. It should be noticeable. It shouldn't be the same as everyone else because we have experienced true love. We have experienced the love that is God and the love from God who is love and was before anything was created. In John 13, 35, it says this. It says, by this, everyone will know that you are my, disi you are my disciples if you love one another. This is how we are to be distinctive. This is how Jesus says we are to be known as his disciples. It's through our love. It is not through various of the other actions we might associate with it. It is not through necessarily being pious and reading and everything like that. It is about love that Jesus highlights here as the key characteristic. We're to be generous and abounding in love, as I've mentioned. It is to be that our love is identifiable because as freely as God lavishes his love on us and we are the most undeserving, so we should lavish it on others as well, even if they may, we may feel that they are undeserving. Imagine how distinctive this sort of love that I've described tonight would be for our Western culture today. One that emphasizes maybe tolerance rather than love. A love that we're looking at, a love that isn't about our pounds of flesh, to use some Shakespearean language. One that is not based upon compassion. Oh, sorry, one that is not based upon comparison. It is based upon compassion or about being reciprocated. It's not about the actions of the other that decide whether we love them or not. In a culture fueled by the notion of personal revenge or the villain getting their comeuppance, how distinctive would it be for this love to be present? The toxicity of a quest for revenge contrasted with the freedom of love, forgiveness, and mercy. As Christians, we are likely to face some level of persecution, whatever that might be. We may even get a slap in the face, or maybe even a lot worse. What this passage is telling us is that we're not to seek revenge. We're not appointed to punish and seek the demise of people who wrong us. They aren't villains in this story. They, they aren't villains in the story that need their comeuppance brought to them by us. They are God's created children, 
even if they don't recognize or know it yet. We are to love them with a distinctive love and let God do with them what he will according to his love, loving and just nature. Depend, um, depending on the acts and the individuals involved, as I say, it can take time. Don't hear from this that this needs to be sudden, instant action. It can and probably will take some time. But the goal of this command, as outlined in 1 Timothy 1.5, Paul says the goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. If the goal we are working towards is love, and the goal we are working towards is love here, and I'm fairly sure from our lives, from our work, from whatever it is that you do, we know that goals can take different periods of time to be attained and achieved. The goal is love, not the instant, re not right now, right here. It is the goal that we are working towards and the journey that we are on. And it is a love that is for everyone. It is a love that has no exceptions. It is a love that does not seek revenge. It does not judge. It is merciful. And as a result of that, it is distinctive and reflects a glimpse of the coming kingdom of God. To me, that sounds like a life-giving and life-saving sort of love for us and for those we encounter, and one that reflects the love that Jesus modeled within Luke during his time on earth. Thank you. Um, let's just pray. Yeah, let's pray. finish by praying. Lord, we thank you for the life of love that Jesus modeled for us. We thank you for how distinctive that love is in our different cultures and our different environments. We thank you for the freedom that comes from that and we thank you for the love that we have first received from you. God, help us to hold to these truths as we seek to love those around us, even ones that have wronged us. Help us know how to do that wisely. Help us know how to do that in accordance to your will and your desires, Lord. We thank you for your word and for what you've brought this evening. And Lord, may it just, words from you for our lives resonate in our minds and our hearts now. Thank you, Father. Amen.